Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Uh, we'll begin today a study in the Gospel of Matthew and start at the appropriate place with the very first verse of this precious Gospel. Matthew chapter 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I want you to try for just a moment to recall some of the titles of the most treasured works in English literature, maybe from your high school or your college days. You might think of titles like The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn or Treasure Island, A Tale of Two Cities, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, did you notice that all of those titles share something in common? Uh, for one thing, the titles give you a basic idea of what the book is all about. You know, for example, from the title of the book by Robert Louis Stevenson, that it's probably about a treasure buried on some remote island somewhere. You get a pretty good idea from the title of the novel by Alexandre Dumas that it's about a man who wears a mask made of iron. And not only do those titles basically summarize what the book is about, they also often have an element of mystery or intrigue that captures your attention, that piques your curiosity so that you want to read the book. Did you notice, for example, that two of the titles I mentioned have the word adventure in it? Well, we all would love to experience some adventure, right? Did you notice that one of the titles had the strange case, which makes you wonder, well, what is this case and why is it strange? So that you'll want to open the book and actually read it. Well, the title of the Gospel of Matthew serves these same two purposes. It summarizes for us what this book is all about, and it also piques our curiosity and stirs our interest, it makes us want to learn and discover more. You might be thinking, well, I don't think so. The gospel according to Matthew, uh, what's so exciting about that? But hold on for just a minute. The title that we give to the first book of our New Testament is not the original title. Uh, the phrase, the gospel according to Matthew, was applied to this gospel by the early church as each of the gospels that originally circulated independently of the others were then placed into a collection and began to circulate together, and one gospel needed to be distinguished from another. So we have the gospel according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. But the original title of the Gospel of Matthew, the title that Matthew himself gave this book is actually what we just read in Matthew 1.1. How do we know that? Well, for one thing, the Gospel begins with the word biblos, which simply means book. 
If we were to spell that Greek word in English, the first four letters would be B-I-B-L. Sound familiar? Yeah, our word Bible is a derivative of this Greek word, and the word Bible means book. We call it the Bible because it is the book of all books. We call it the Holy Bible because it is the holiest of books. But the word Bible itself originally meant book. There are different words for book in the language of the New Testament. And the word biblos meant big book. If you wanted to refer to a little book, you would use a diminutive ending on that noun. We still use diminutive endings today, don't we? For example, if I refer to a pig, I probably mean a big old monster pig. But if I refer to a piglet, I'm referring to a little tiny baby pig. Uh, the suffix let is a diminutive ending. It, it takes a root and, and implies that it's tiny or it is small. And here's my point. A lot of people have assumed that Matthew 1.1 is simply a title for the genealogy of the Lord Jesus that immediately follows, or maybe the account of Jesus' birth and infancy that soon follow. But if that were all Matthew had wanted to communicate, he would have used the diminutive form of this noun, biblion, which means little book, or to add our suffix, booklet. Since he uses the word forbid book, a word that normally referred to a book so massive that it fulfilled, it filled an entire book roll or scroll, we know that this must serve as the title not just for the first few verses or even the first few chapters of this gospel, but for this gospel in its entirety. And we're going to confirm that as we see correspondences between this first verse of the gospel and the very last two verses of the gospel. There's parallel after parallel, corollary after corollary, confirming for us that Matthew 1.1 is the original title of the gospel according to Matthew. And just as some of the titles we talked about both summarize the message of the book and pique our curiosity so that we want to study the book, the title of the gospel according to Matthew summarizes the message of this gospel and stirs our hearts so that we are inspired to study it more carefully. And what I want to do this morning is to take a look at this title. We're going to start at the end of the title and work our way forward and unpack it piece by piece. And what we first discover in this title is that Jesus is the Savior of all the peoples of the world. Matthew describes Jesus the Messiah as son of David, son of Abraham. Now, many have just assumed that when Matthew refers to Jesus as the son of Abraham, all he's implying is that Jesus is a true Jew, that Jesus is a true Israelite. I don't agree. As a matter of fact, we know from the Gospel of Matthew that a person should not make too big a deal out of their Jewish heritage or their Israelite ethnicity. You remember what John the Baptist said? 
to the people of his day, he says, Say not, we have Abraham for our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up from these very stones children of Abraham. What John the Baptist is saying in Matthew chapter 3 is that no one should depend on their Jewishness or their background as an Israelite as an assurance of their salvation. How then can Matthew emphasize Jesus' lineage from the patriarch Abraham here in the title? Well, Matthew is not merely telling us that Jesus is a son or descendant of Abraham. His point is that Jesus is the son. He is the descendant of Father Abraham. He is a special descendant that was mentioned in God's covenant with Abraham and in the Old Testament prophecies again and again. Listen, for example, to Genesis 12, 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your seed, your offspring. Then Genesis 13, 15, I will give you and your seed, your offspring forever, all the land that you see. Genesis 17, 8, I will give to you and your future offspring, the land where you are residing as an eternal possession, and I will be their God. Now, too often we assume that the seed or offspring of Abraham is a reference to just the Jewish nation. But the Apostle Paul argues rightly in Galatians 3.16 that the Hebrew word Zerah is intentionally singular and that that indicates that the Old Testament Prophets and writers were referring to a single individual specific descendant of Abraham who would be the fulfillment of these promises. And that special descendant is none other than the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is that so important? It's because not only does God promise the recreated earth will be the inheritance of this seed, this descendant of Abraham. God also promises that he is the one through whom all nations on earth will be blessed. Remember Genesis 17, 4? One element of God's covenant with Abram was that he would be the father of many nations. And then God went on in Genesis 18, 18 to say, all nations will be blessed through you. But then Genesis 22, 18 explained that they wouldn't be blessed through Abraham directly, but they would be blessed through his promised descendant. God said, all nations on earth will be blessed by your seed your descendant, your offspring. And that seed, descendant, Matthew insists, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one through whom all nations on earth will be blessed. Blessed how? Blessed with salvation. Blessed with the forgiveness of sin. Blessed with his transforming power. 
Not surprisingly, Matthew's gospel is going to stress again and again and again the inclusion of Gentiles, non-Israelites, in the people of God. We'll see this next week when we get to the genealogy. Four women are mentioned. They have one thing in common. They're Gentiles, Canaanites, Moabites, and Hittites. Then... We get to Matthew chapter 2, and who are the first people to rush to Bethlehem to worship the infant Christ? Magi from the east who were Gentiles. We progress through the gospel and we see the Lord Jesus reside in Galilee of the Gentiles. We see Gentiles from Syria and the Decapolis following him and requesting that miracles be performed by him. We see Jesus show kindness and compassion to a Roman centurion, to a Canaanite woman. We see the Lord Jesus teach that it's not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who will sit at the table in the great messianic feast, but people from the east and people from the west, the farthest reaches of the globe. And then when we reach the climax of the gospel, we see... The climactic confession of Jesus' identity made from the foot of the cross by who? A Roman centurion. And all of this leads to the final verses where Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In other words, Jesus' identity as the son of Abraham should be a great, great comfort to every person in this room because it tells us that he came to die for, to bear the sin guilt of, to redeem and transform people just like us. Do you remember the Apostle Paul's description of the plight of those who were outside of the nation of Israel? He says in Ephesians 2, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those who were called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without the Messiah. You were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. When the Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both, both Jew and Gentile now, who believe in Christ, we through him both have access by one spirit to the Father. So then, you Gentiles are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's family, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Jesus, as son of Abraham, is the one who came to bring the blessing of salvation 
to people of all the nations of the world. And when he returns in his glory, as Daniel 7 said, there will be people of every nation, tribe, and tongue bowing down and serving him. And every time we take upon ourselves that responsibility of carrying the gospel to the nations, we are confessing our faith in Jesus as son of Abraham, the fulfillment of Genesis 22:18, the one in whom all nations on earth will be blessed. And not only does Matthew tell us that Jesus is the son of Abraham, he tells us that Jesus is son of David. And just as the title son of Abraham meant that he was the special promised descendant of Abraham who would fulfill God's covenant with Abraham, even so the title son of David means he is that special promised descendant of David who will fulfill God's covenant with David. God's covenant with David was given in 2 Samuel 7 through the prophet Nathan. God told David that he was going to raise up one of his descendants to reign over the kingdom forever and ever without end. God said, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a name for you like that of the greatest in the land. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever. And your throne will be established forever. And from that time forward, the Old Testament prophets began to look for a special descendant of David who would reign from David's throne over the people of God for all eternity. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. An example of this is in Isaiah chapter 9, where the prophet tells us, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will reign over the throne of David and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with righteousness and justice from now on and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So that when Matthew tells us Jesus is the son of David, he's saying he's that child of 2 Samuel 7, of Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 11, and so forth. He is that special descendant of David who is going to reign over the people of God for all eternity. Matthew wants us to know that he is a herald of the messianic king. He has taken up the responsibility of announcing the king's coming so that we will know that the long-awaited sovereign has come. Why? So that we can prepare his throne, so that we can hand him the scepter, 
so that we can place the golden diadem on his head and declare him as King of kings and Lord of lords, recognizing that he is the ultimate authority and we are his mere humble subjects. And our responsibility is to submit to his authority, to obey his commandments, to bow before him in homage, and readily surrender to his rule over every aspect of our lives. Our necessary response to Jesus, the son of David, was summed up well, I think, in the old hymn written by Charles Wesley, who penned these words, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. That's what Jesus' identity as the son of David beckons us to do this morning. There must be no single area of our life where we say to Jesus Christ, that's off limits, but out, I'm in charge of that, no. As Dr. Adrian Rogers was fond of saying, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Recognition of Jesus' identity as the Davidic king means that we lay our lives at his feet and give to him everything that we have and everything that we are, holding nothing back. Not only is Jesus the son of Abraham, the one through whom all nations on earth will be blessed, not only is he the son of David, the eternal king of God's people, he is vastly more even than that. He is the creator who came to make all things new. You say, well, how in the world do you get that out of Matthew 1, 1? Oh, this is one of those verses of the Bible where, unfortunately, our translators have not done the best job of expressing what the original text clearly means. The first phrase in the original Greek text here is biblos genesaos Jesu Christu. That word biblos means book, but the next word genesaos is a genitive form of the word in Greek genesis. Genesis. Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, we pronounce the initial, the gamma, which we would transliterate as a G, uh, with a soft G. In Greek, it was a hard G. So we would pronounce it not genesis, but genesis. Genesis. That's right. Matthew begins his gospel with the exact phrase, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Book of Genesis? Uh, that's the title that Matthew's contemporaries, like Philo of Alexandria, used as a title for the very first book of our Old Testament. That's the same title that was given to the first book of the Old Testament by ancient Christian scribes. 
It's the title we find for the first book of Moses in Codex Vaticanus, A.D. 325, Codex Alexandrinus, 4th and 5th century, and so forth. It would have been impossible for Matthew's original readers of his Greek gospel to come across that phrase and not have their minds drawn back to the book of Genesis, the Old Testament book of origin in which God created everything that exists. And not only is this phrase, Biblos Geneseos, book of Genesis, used as a title for the first book of the Old Testament, that phrase is actually used twice in the Old Testament, both occurrences are in the early chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 2-4, we have that phrase, the book of Genesis, and it's immediately followed by an account of the creation of the heaven and the earth. Then we find it again in Genesis 5-1, the book of Genesis, and it's followed by an account of the creation of humanity, beginning with Adam, going down to his descendants. So when those familiar with the Old Testament encountered this phrase, they wouldn't merely think of the first book of the Old Testament, but they would think of the creation accounts in that first Old Testament book specifically. And then they would have that aha moment where they realized Matthew's writing for us a new book of Genesis. Matthew is writing for us a new account of creation. And then they see that next phrase where the creator is identified. It's the book of Genesis, and it's a Genesis performed by Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And even before we get to the description of Jesus as Emmanuel, later in Matthew chapter 1, God with us, we are already informed that Jesus Christ is none other than the incarnation of deity, almighty God in human form. And Matthew has also signaled for us why God clothed himself in human flesh and came into this world it was to perform the miracle of new creation. Because when God made creation back in Genesis chapter 1, it was good. It was even very good. But then sin entered the picture and spoiled everything. It corrupted what was pure. It brought death in the place of life. Sin in the place of the divine image and so forth. It corrupted everything that it touched. And the scripture looks forward to the day when the one who created back in Genesis 1 will recreate, will make all things new, ridding the world of all that sin has corrupted and restoring it to its original perfection. And Matthew signals for us in several different ways, several different places in his gospel that Jesus is the one who will perform that miracle of new creation. The most explicit reference to it is in Matthew 19, 28. 
There the Lord Jesus describes what will happen when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory. And how does he describe that period of the Messiah's ultimate reign? Well, our translations will say different things. Some say the Messianic age. Some say the new age. Some say the restoration of all things. The Greek word there is palingenesia, which means the new genesis, the new beginning, the new origin. And what the Lord Jesus is telling us in Matthew 19, 28, is that he is the creator who came to restore the creation to its original perfection to make all things new. Now, there are interesting connections between this first verse in Matthew and the last verses. Jesus describes himself as the son of Abraham, the one whom, whom all nations on earth will be blessed. And then the final verse says to go make disciples of all nations. Matthew describes Jesus as the son of David, the king who will reign over God's people forever and ever. And in the final verses of the gospel, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And there's a connection here too. Matthew 1, 1 describes the Lord Jesus as the creator who came to perform the miracle of new creation to bring about a new Genesis. And the very final words of the gospel of Matthew are, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the gospel ends on that note of hopeful anticipation of the moment when this age will end. And a new age will begin. A new age in which Jesus Christ has created the world yet again, restored its original perfection. This is the moment that we read about just last week in Revelation 21, when the one who sits on the throne declares, Behold, I make all things new. And in an instant... There is no more death, there is no more sickness, there is no more pain, there is no more sorrow, there is no more weeping because the former things have passed away. And we transition from this age to that age, all that sin has corrupted and destroyed will be restored, perfected, and we will spend eternity with our Lord in that amazing and wonderful new creation. But that's not the full extent of the miracle of new creation. Although we still wait for the miracle of new creation to be consummated and completed when Jesus comes again, the fact is that the miracle of new creation has already begun in our lives if we have believed on Jesus as our God, our Savior and King, Son of Yahweh, Son of David, and Son of Abraham. Why would I say that? Because the miracle of new creation, it doesn't just talk about how he will transform this cosmos. The miracle of new creation involves him transforming us. The Apostle Paul understood that element of Jesus' teaching, and that's why he says in Galatians 6, Look, 
circumcision doesn't matter, uncircumcision doesn't matter. What matters is that you are a new creation. That's why he says in Ephesians 2.10, we are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which the Father prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, created in Christ Jesus isn't a reference to the original work of creation. It's a reference to that miracle of new creation. God transforming his people from the inside out. And then, of course, the one we know most and best, 2 Corinthians 5. If any person is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. The Lord Jesus loves us so, so much that he forgives us just as we are, even in our unthinkable, wretched sinfulness. But make no mistake, he loves us way too much to leave us that way. The same love that compelled him to forgive us just as we are also compels him to change us from what we were into something new and different. That's why Paul can tell the members of the church of Corinth that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he clicks off some of the horrible sins that had characterized the Corinthians before they followed Christ. And then he adds such were past tense some of you but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the lord jesus and by the spirit of our god what's paul saying he's saying if you're a follower of jesus christ you're not the person you used to be you have been made new but sadly Many people who have sat in our churches for years and years and years have not grasped this crucial element of the Christian gospel. When I was vice president for the integration of faith and learning at a college in the Deep South, I conducted surveys of our incoming freshmen every single semester to see how well they understood the basic truths of the Christian faith. I've referred to the surveys before. Those who took this survey, 98% claimed to be Christian. About two-thirds of them had grown up in Louisiana Baptist churches and indicated on the survey that they had attended on average at least one service a week. But when asked to define new birth in a multiple-choice question, they could not. 65% of the students thought that being born again was a reference to reincarnation or transmigration. Claims of false religion, not the Christian gospel. Now, one of the questions on the survey was this, a Christian is best described as, and the correct response in the multiple choice question was, a person whose sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' sacrificial death and whose life has been dramatically changed by Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. But 55% of the students didn't choose the correct response. They instead said, a Christian is best 
described as a person who is just as sinful as anyone else. The only difference is that they have been forgiven. Now think about the repercussions of that response for a moment. That's not, that's not the gospel. That's only half the gospel, which is not much of a gospel at all. What they're saying is that Jesus Christ forgives the sinner but does nothing to transform him or her. Nothing to change them. Nothing to deliver them from their slavery to sin, their bondage to Satan. And the true gospel of Jesus Christ insists that the Lord Jesus does not only forgive the repentant and believing sinner, he transforms that sinner. Sinner becomes saint. The wicked are made righteous. The evil are made good by Christ's amazing creative power. Because the same one who breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life and made him a living soul back in the Garden of Eden is the very same one who breathes his spirit into us to give us new spiritual life, to transform us from the inside out so that we increasingly become the people that God desires. The Lord Jesus changes our hearts our attitudes, our priorities, our character, our behavior, our lifestyle, so that we who would have brought him great shame increasingly bring him great glory. As the Lord Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, men will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The hymn summarizes these major themes of the introduction to the Gospel of Matthew, his identity as son of Abraham, son of David, son of Yahweh, our Savior, our King, our Creator. It says, Jesus, son of Abraham, who will the nations bless, pronounce the guilty righteous when faith they confess. The inheritance of promise, Lord, by grace grant me a part. Make me thy new Israel. Circumcise my heart. Jesus, son of David, at the Lord's right hand, reigning o'er the peoples of every tribe and land, revering saints and angels before his throne bow down. Trembling kings kneel at his feet and cast their royal crowns. Jesus, Son of Yahweh, maker of heaven and earth, make me a new creation. Give me the new birth. Like man first made of lifeless dust until your breath you blew, impart your spirit to me, Lord. Behold, make all things new. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We have just begun our study of the Gospel of Matthew, but Matthew has already told us the key and essential truths of the Christian Gospel. Jesus is son of Abraham, son of David, son of Yahweh. He is our Savior, 
our King, and our God. And if you have not already done so, I pray that right now you will confess faith in Jesus as your God, Savior, and King so that you can receive the gift of forgiveness of sin, a transformed life, and then one day when He comes again, eternal life with Him in this grand new creation. And if you today are confessing faith in Jesus as God, Savior, and King, when we sing together in just a moment, I invite you to come forward and speak to one of our church leaders. They'll answer any questions you might have about the Christian gospel. You can leave this place today with steadfast assurance that Christ is your Savior, your sin is forgiven, and your life is being transformed by His power. Father, we thank you for the simple and profound truths of the Christian gospel that appear in this title of our very first New Testament book. And Lord, I pray that you would impose these great truths on the hearts and minds of every person who has heard them and move them to confess faith in Jesus as God, Savior, and King not only for the sake of their eternal souls, but so that they can have peace and joy here and now. In Jesus' name.